Welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, we are sitting down with elite world champion mountain biker, Kate Boyle. Kate holds a number of records in ultra-endurance bike racing, a number of FKTs. Um, She also is just a huge proponent for the outdoors, getting people outside, having adventures, uh, conservation, um, she's one of the co-creators of bike packing roots. Um, so in this episode, we'll talk all about bike packing, which by the way, if you hear about bike packing and it doesn't intrigue you, like my mind's blown because bike packing sounds super cool. Basically, especially the way Kate describes it. She's like, you just leave your, from your house, like pack a backpack, pack a tent, leave from your house and just start riding your bike and then see where it takes you. Um, and then camp out and do it again the next day. It sounds awesome. Um, we talk about Arizona trail. Uh, we talk about all sorts of different races, but my main focus and the main reason I wanted to have her on is because she just set the women's fastest known time on the Coca trail. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that the Coca holds a special place near and dear to my heart um based off of my experience doing the stage race desert rats uh a couple years in a row and i just love it so much man like there's it's a special place on earth i can't describe it you have to go experience it for yourself if you're a bike packer specifically it is a classic trail it goes from fruta colorado to moab utah or backwards well backwards to me kate does it moab to fruta um but it's special man it takes you deep into the heart of the desert you are out there you are way out there in the middle of the wilderness um you know relying on your own skills and ability to endure to get you through the trail uh but it's i mean to me anyways it is one of the best places in the united states so uh i was super excited just to hear about setting the fkt on it um (laughs) she did it very 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 fast which is amazing um and in one day which is also crazy to me um but yeah so i hope you guys enjoy it's something that if you're thinking about 2021 or the summer the fall maybe not the summer it gets super hot even though deseret's folks We'll be out there in June. Um, But if you're thinking about like a future adventure to go on, this is something to for sure look into. Uh, So, yeah. Anyways, let's get into it. Uh, Very excited to have her on the show. Um, This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 229 with mountain biker, bike packer, all around awesome and inspiring human being, Kate boil all right guys this week uh i'm i'm incredibly excited because i'm a coca pelly trail nerd um and i'm gonna sit down and talk with kate boyle she just set the fkt um from the mountain bike on the coca pelly trail so welcome to the show kate thank you so much chris i'm psyched to be here yeah, so I mean, we'll get into the Coca Pelli and all of that, uh, but I want to start with this question. So, when you're like 
100 miles into one of these things, do you have a love-hate relationship with your bike? Like, are you cursing at your bike at certain points? No, I'm not. And I never have. Um, and my racing, mountain bike racing specialty is really like 24 hour racing and longer. So I think that what makes that possible is like being able to tap into just being really grateful to be on my bike. And I certainly have times where I'm tired <laughs> and my legs don't feel great or part of my body doesn't feel great, but I've never found myself um, having a, any part of a hate relationship with it. That's awesome. That's like while the, racing. Yeah. <laughs> What's the, uh, like just working on it in the garage and stuff. Is that. Yeah. And I think that like really more of the struggle comes during training. Like when you've just been working so hard and I'm just like on that point of teetering between being really tired and like just about ready for a recovery period um and you're working towards this goal that's so distant but like while actually racing i think a good taper really helps like feel really fresh and excited and also just like being able to be out there doing it and like sometimes just reminding myself like i get to do this like i'm choosing this <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's so cool i i asked that question because i did a much, much, much shorter mountain bike race this year. And it was my very first mountain bike race. And there wasn't a moment where I was going to cuss out my bike, but there was a moment where I was just so completely tired and tired of just going uphill. Like I swear the beginning was just uphill forever. And I was like, oh my gosh, how many more uphills do we have? Uh -huh. Yeah. I think every race feels that way often in some, so many ways, but yeah, just being able to come back to the like, why am I doing this? And I'm choosing to be here is super helpful for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how did you how did you even get into mountain biking? Well, I, yeah, I didn't start mountain biking until my kind of early or mid 20s, which sometimes feels late because I, it has it resonates with me so much that I wish that I had started earlier. Um, but I came into, I stumbled upon it through climbing. Um, I was living out of my truck, climbing in Indian Creek, just south of Moab. Um, and a good friend of mine from college came and she was more of a mountain biker. And so after like one day of climbing, she was like, yeah, let's go mountain biking. <laughs> and I was pretty tired. My upper body was pretty tired at that point. So I was like, yeah, sure. And she <laughs> wanted to demo a bike, a new bike for herself. And so I rode her old bike and uh, she left Moab having basically gifted me this mountain bike and it just really quickly felt like this way of moving that nothing else had felt for me. Like if there was the endurance aspect of it that really works well for my body. Like I just feel really good moving steadily, like never particularly hard, <laughs> um, but for a long time and it also has the technical element that I think for my brain, like one that's like pretty active, like it's a way for me to be focused and in, in the present moment. And I think that it, like I find kind of the most long flow state while biking than other activities. And prior to that, I'd been trail running and climbing a bunch and mountain biking and backcountry skiing and mountain biking just had this kind of like combination of all the elements that I loved about so many of those things yeah was there any part of you that was just 
like you can take your mountain bike and you can get way back in the back country. Was that kind of like an exciting part? Yeah, that was a huge part because I pretty quickly was like, well, if I spend the same amount of time on my bike that I do hiking or running or climbing for sure, then like I'll go way farther and see a much bigger scale of the landscape. And that's how I pretty quickly dove into bikepacking. Um, within the first year I had, I went out and bikepacked the Cocopelli trail with my like 45 liter Alpine climbing pack that I don't recommend anyone do. They actually make bags for bikepacking, <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time. And so that was my first bikepacking trip. And then I rode the Great Divide mountain bike route from Mexico to Canada um, that next summer. And that way of just traveling on my bike and seeing a massive landscape. I mean, like the entire American West unfold underneath my tires in just a month, like sleeping every single night and never riding it in the dark. I was just blown away by the possibilities. That's amazing. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Like just the riding in the daytime, you're not missing anything. No, not at all. <laughs> That's cool. That's so cool. Um, what was it? I mean, I guess to kind of jump into Cocopelli a bit, uh, obviously I know it is kind of like a classic bike packing trail. Um, it's like what, like 140 miles or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've ran it. So I did like a stage race there for a couple years and two years in a row. And I love it. Like it was the best adventure I've ever had. Um, cool. but what, like what makes it such a classic bike packing, uh, route? Well, the first thing I have to say is that imagining running that route sounds so much harder than biking it. I'm like, my knees and hips just started hurting thinking about it. <laughs> Partly because this morning I went for my first run in like four months as my like, oh, it's off season and I shouldn't ride my bike and can't because it's dumping snow. So I'll go run on icy roads <laughs> for like 20 minutes. <laughs> um, so imagining running Cahokapelli is unreal. But the bike packing on it, um, I mean, I'm sure I don't have all the pieces of the story, but the route was created in the early 90s um, as a longer distance route that was open to bikes. And so it was really one of the earliest kind of more backcountry routes that people could ride um, in a point to point fashion off primarily like off pavement, although there is some. And I think because it is accessible by vehicle in so many places, it probably i'd imagine became someone's idea pretty quickly that oh we could ride this in its like entirety with some vehicle support and that's still a really common way to ride the trail like there are a number of different outfitters that guide multi-day rides on cocopelli and they have a vehicle support um, which i think is a fantastic way to get people on like a longer multi-day adventure who wouldn't otherwise do so um and also because of the lack of water, like there's so little natural water on the route, it is harder to bikepack self-supported, um, but people inevitably did. And by just the mid nineties, this guy, Gary Dye, was the first person that we know of who went out to ride the Cocopelli in one go. And so that's really what inspired the like FKT of it. And, and so it's kind of incredible that there is that history um, of a bike FKT on that route because that is quite old for a mountain bike FKT. 
Yeah. Well, so how did, I mean, where did he find water at? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, so the Colorado river is like yeah. the reliable source and it is kind of gnarly in that it has a, there's a lot of agriculture upstream of there. Um, but you know, you, if you treat it or filter it, then you certainly can drink it. And so there are two places that it's really accessible. Um, one at Dewey bridge, which mm-hmm. is like, just under halfway if you're going from Moab to Fruta and then at McGraw bottom, which is probably right at halfway. Okay. Um, and then there is water in the less cells um, of varying re- reliability depending on the year. And so for me, I had two other opportunities to fill up in the less cells, which was pretty early for my race, but really good timing too, because we didn't have to carry as much water on the really long climbs. Yeah. So did you do it like completely self-supported? That's what I was gonna. Wow. Yeah. So our races for mountain bike FKTs, like we don't really have a supported category in the way okay. that the ultra running world does. Um, so FKTs are self-supported, um, which for those listening that want any clarification, that really means that you can only use what's available at any time of the year for anyone. And so that means water that is on the ground. Like I can't go out and cash water ahead of time. Um, I can't accept water from like someone who just happens to be on the route, even if it's not planned ahead. Um, and if there was a store on the route, which there isn't for Coca Pelle, but no. for other races there are, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. then you could get food at the store or water, but okay. it's not really a thing in Coca Pelle. Yeah, you need, if something happens, you need to fix it yourself or take care of it yourself. And if you get help from outside, then you're essentially uh, scratched. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. wild. So, I mean, I, that that course is so seemingly in the middle of nowhere. So if you do have something break down on your bike, like, do you have that in the back of your mind? Or at this point of your career, are you just yeah. like super confident with, you know, being able to fix everything? No, totally. I mean, I carry more um, for repair stuff than I would for, say, like a cross-country race where if I have a flat, then like I can walk out easily or (laughs) get help (laughs) from a course marshal. Um, So I carry a little more repair stuff. And I also ride a little more conservatively, like knowing that if I am charging down the like the chunky Jeep road, like back by Rose Garden Hill and I crash and hurt myself, like I have a spot. And so if it was like, really, I needed search and rescue, I could push that button, but like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) So like, I I don't want to inflict that on myself. Like there are some things you just can't control, but I'm riding at a pace and making judgments about how I ride so that I'm not crashing and not hurting myself so that I'm not a liability to myself or search and rescue. Yeah. First of all, also Rose Garden, there's no roses there. (laughs) There's none. No, there are no. Yeah, it's a rock garden, really. It's just jagged rocks, jagged yeah. rocks everywhere. Um, totally. So, and you had to go up that because we always went the other way. So you went from yeah. Moab to Fruta. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to go up. There's like this ridiculously steep part at a certain point that you had to, I'm assuming you pushed yeah. your bike, but maybe not. I don't oh, yeah. know. Well, yeah, I mean, I just assumed that everyone pushed their bike up it, but um, Kurt rode three quarters of the way up it which insane to me. <laughs> and it's also like it's not just steep it's like really loose like 
there are massive boulders in it and just like a lot of loose sandstone baby heads on top of sand and so that's crazy none none of it is like good traction (laughs) well and it's also like one of the greatest athletic feats of all time, but like nobody's around to witness him going three fourths the way. Totally. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. That, that is. <laughs> well, so let me ask. So, yeah, you did this with, and, and Kurt, if you could talk a little bit about him, he was going for the men's FKT, correct? Yeah. So, this wasn't really an individual time trial in that I wasn't solo um i started the fkt effort with uh lail wilcox um who's also a and it well she's an incredibly accomplished ultra endurance mountain biker and cyclist and kurt Refsnyder started about a half an hour after us um and he is my teammate and he's also my coach um and so he started a little bit later and then blew by both of us and finished with a new men's fkt which was really incredible because he had set an fkt on it in the summer of 2019 and then earlier this year lachlan martin a pro tour road cyclist um went and bested kurt's fkt in june and so kurt went out and went after that and i know that was a big accomplishment for him because cocapelli is an interesting route like i'm I'd be curious what your perspectives are from running it, but for a cyclist, like it's so varied in that going from Moab, you have like 7,000 feet of climbing on dirt road to start, like in yeah. first a 4,000 foot climb and then another six and a, or two and a half, 2,500 foot climb. And then there's some like really punchy, chunky Jeep road climbing that is pretty challenging to climb without just redlining yourself. Um, and then once you get to Dewey Bridge, you basically, you don't get to coast anymore, <laughs> yeah. which I know isn't a th- really, then that's the thing that blows my mind about running. You don't coast ever, but for us to be like really pedaling on the gas steadily across pretty flat, but still like rolling with some punchy climbs landscape. And then we finish with like 15 miles of technical single track where yeah. you have to have bursts of power to ride it and you have to still be physically and mentally with it to stay on the trail and on your bike so in that way it i don't think the route caters to any one cyclist strength um but uh someone like lachlan who's a professional road cyclist would certainly be well equipped to charge on it yeah well you're right it's so varied in the terrain and that's kind of what for me anyways like doing it over days uh, that's what kept it interesting. Like every day was different. Every day looked different, different scenery, different kind of like, you know, trail you're running on and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, to do it in yeah, one amazing. day is in, and as fast as you guys did, I'm like, woo, that's crazy. <laughs> was there any point where you just like started hitting the wall? Yeah, totally. So <laughs> my, this race, um, was the longest ride that I've done in two years since winning the 24-hour world championship in 2018 following a really big car accident and some pretty massive injuries and so i hadn't ridden for longer than like nine and a half hours um in training for this and so i didn't really know what would happen at hour nine and a half for my body um and later and and just given the nature of that route like we you don't just go out and ride in tempo for like 
eight hours to see what happens when you're training. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you do do that in Cocapelli when you're like, well, I'm going to try to set an FKT. Like how hard can I hold yeah. this pace? And so I was able to sustain this kind of like mid to upper tempo pace for the first nine hours, um, you know, broken up by when we did get to descend and I'd have little moments of recovering. But then at like hour nine and a half, the wheels started to fall off a little bit. Um, and that was right around the like Utah, Colorado state border where like we no longer are on the pavement by Westwater and suddenly you're like climbing kind of on some chunky ledgy stuff again. Um, and, and really I just needed to like eat a bunch of food. And so I ate two gels at a time and a cookie, which like for your gut is like kind of a substantial hit of sugar. <laughs> um, but I was just like, I just need, like, I need to do something. And That's what I do when my kids are like super grumpy and tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please eat, just eat whatever. Yeah. Ice cream. No, it's true. And that's where you're like, Oh, did you ever like want to curse your bike? And it's like, well, if I probably, if I didn't eat, I probably would have started to like, like want to throw my bike off a cliff, but <laughs> I just ate a bunch yeah. and I backed off for like a little bit and then I felt good again. And, and at that point, and also like with that mentally, rather than thinking about like, Oh, the finish line is this far away. Like I'm at hour nine and a half. I'm on record pace. If I like, I still have two and a half hours of riding instead. It was like, okay, I'm at hour nine and a half and I'm only like, a half an hour from rabbit valley and so yeah. i'm just going to focus on getting there and not wasting time bonking <laughs> <laughs> and instead just like eat food and keep working on getting there and then yeah. by the time i got there i was like oh i feel great <laughs> and i'm so close to the end <laughs> there you go yeah that rocks like just the chunking it into different you know smaller goals yeah. along the way yeah, yeah. and that's, that's really huge for me getting through any ultra yeah, that's awesome. Well, so your your friend Lael was out there. Were you guys like racing each other? I mean, were you yeah, both we going racing. for it? Yeah, we were going for it. Um, I had never met her before, but we've been wanting to race each other. And like, she's incredible. And like, really, I think if the race was 1,400 miles instead of like 140, <laughs> she would be out there or she would have like kicked my butt because she's... <laughs> just insanely efficient and talented at that really long distance. Um, she just has this ability to just like pedal steadily without yeah. ever stopping. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that that shorter distance, um, and the little bit of like technical riding favored me just in my, um, the effort I'd put into it this summer and getting ready for it. So yeah, we were both out there and she was an incredible inspiration and motivation for me. Um, and so we started together and then I ended up riding away from her in the LaSalle's. Yeah. Oh, so when you guys all get to the end, um, and you go out to eat afterwards, are you just sitting there? Like, this is so weird. Like nobody knows what we just did today, like <laughs> on this day. <laughs> yeah. And especially during a pandemic, there's like just not much going on. You know, you would get to the trailhead, and like the, so our official end is at like the parking lot and outhouse of the Cocapelli trail. And so you finish the, <laughs> the Mary's loop trail and then you have yeah. to like ride the pavement up over the hill, which is yeah. also kind of like a brutal thing to have this final hill to sprint <laughs> up. And then you like fly down. And so you're, there are all these people out recreating 
And I am out there like just riding my heart out and just like sprinting to, it's like, I'm just like sprinting to my car and never, but <laughs> no one knows why, you know, they're probably like, Oh, that's a crazy girl. Like trying to race <laughs> us to the trailhead. <laughs> and then we get there and yeah, it's like my partner was there and Kurt was there cause he had just finished. And um, some photographers who had, had come along to document for, our own project we're like oh yeah nice job and like all right <laughs> and then <laughs> we like kind of wait and we wait for like kurt waited for me to finish and we, we waited for Lil to finish and we like chat a little bit about other adventures and other racing and, and it's like all right well now we're all like can't really move because our bodies have seized and it's time to just go camp <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah that's the thing that i love about just ultra endurance sports is there's not a lot of fanfare at the end and so it's the ultimate like i'm doing this for me and i'm getting through this because i have some internal drive that i can't really even explain that i'm really Uh that's really pushing me forward you know totally yeah like i finished in 2018 i raced arizona trail 300 and it took me 52 hours and I slept for like 20 minutes during it and so but I rode as hard as I could to the finish because like at that point you're just like I'm so close and like I'm just gonna truly empty the tank and you feel like you're going really fast but you're actually like not but and again it was just like all these people were there at the trailhead doing their own thing um and have no idea that this race is going on and I got there and I had my truck and I was like well I just set a record on this i like should take a picture and so i like asked some random hikers to take my picture with the sign and they're yeah. like oh where do you come from <laughs> i was like oh well mexico yeah, 300 <laughs> like, oh, miles oh, away well, <laughs> yeah and they like took my picture and like that was that <laughs> that's amazing yeah that reminds me of uh if you saw the movie free solo he like does this oh, yeah. crazy thing gets to the top and there's just other people up there just hiking uh-huh. don't know what just <laughs> yeah. happened they don't know uh-huh that the craziest thing ever just happened. And it's it's just yeah. a wild part of adventure sports that I I really appreciate. Um, well, so I, I remember uh, Scott Morris, uh, kind of mm-hmm. cousin, um, <laughs> which I was explaining yeah. to you beforehand. Uh, he has explained to me, like, people will sign up for the Arizona Trail Race. And after, like, 25 miles or 30 miles, they'll be like, this is way more challenging than I thought it would be. Oh, yeah. What is it? Sonoida, 30 miles in. Well, I think that the first 30 miles are particularly challenging, but they don't look like they would be on paper. Yeah. And so there's just this like, it's just 30 miles of all these really short, steep climbs with really short, steep descents. And it's getting better each year, but it's often like fairly overgrown with cat claw and, you know, like just the prickly desert scrub. And it's hot and you like have to start with a lot of water because there isn't any water for those 30 miles. And I think that people, it's really easy to just start off too hard. Yeah. People are psyched and some, and maybe have like different ideas of what they're capable of than maybe what they're really ready for in that trail. And so I think, but it's really easy to just blow up and six hours is a long time. Like if you go hard for six hours, there's a really good chance you'll feel pretty shitty afterwards. And then you ride some pavement into this town of Sonoida where suddenly there's like sandwiches and Coca-Cola and all the things. And people will like 
sit down really feeling probably really hot and dehydrated and then like worked from their trip through the Canelo Hills or those first six hours. And then I think that they maybe feel like really a little demoralized. They're like, you know, what's better than suffering? Yeah. Coca-Cola and sandwiches. And they're like, and there's like pizza over there. (laughs) Why are we Um, leaving pizza? I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think when people are like, whoa, that was 30 miles and it took me like six hours, eight hours, 10 hours, like, and that happens. Like, it took takes all day. Then suddenly it's really easy to be like, oh shit, how am I going to ride the next 270? Yeah. Oh, that's the whole like, if the goal is so gigantic and you're not breaking it down, it can just overwhelm you. Totally. And that's where the breaking it down, being like, okay, I just need to get to. Sonoda. And then yeah. when you get to Sonoda and be like, okay, the next goal is Kentucky camp. And that's like two hours away, you know, okay. and then the next goal is I 10 and that's like four hours away or whatever. And so the strategy I think is just so huge and not getting overwhelmed and also yeah. like letting yourself really be like, okay, like my goal, and this is realistic is to spend eight hours in the Canal Hills and then have the energy because I pace myself well to keep going. Yeah. Does the trail get easier at any point or is it? Yeah. And it changes character. Like there are challenging sections throughout it, but they change. And so the section after Sonoida continues to roll, but there's some like really nice flowy single track in there where it's not strenuous and you get this mental break. And then the section after I-10, like kind of it's the Arizona trail south of Tucson um, by Colossal Cave and the Saguaro National national park it's like beautiful flowy single track and so that's really fun and flowy and you get a break from the hard and then you climb over reading over mount lemon and that's hard because it's a massive climb but there's some road in there and for us on bikes like roads are often where you can actually take care of yourself pretty well um just because it you can take your hands off the bars more easily and yeah yeah did you have to cross the grand canyon in that no, I did the 300. So you end 300 miles north of Mexico, which is oh, gotcha. like parallel to Phoenix. Um, oh, okay. And yeah. So if you do the full length route, the 750, or I think they're calling it the 800 now. That's right. Uh, and you go from Mexico to Utah, then you do carry your bike through the Grand Canyon. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> My, uh, I had some buddies out here and they, well, they ended up hiking the Grand Canyon. Uh, and they said they saw some people who were doing a super long bike ride, I think from Canada to Mexico and they had to get rerouted and they had to go through the Grand Canyon. And then they realized like, Oh, we have to carry our bikes. And they were like, oh we were just God. talking to these guys who are just like, unexpectedly have to carry their bikes through the Grand Canyon. He's like, everyone was cheering them on and (laughs) all that stuff. (laughs) That's wild. That's wild. Well, um, I wanted to ask you like, what, like, did you grow up always like as an outdoorsy person or is this something that's developed later in life? Um, I think I grew up outdoorsy, but not in the same way. Like I grew up riding and working with horses outside a lot. And so I spent a lot of time outside with them and I actually grew up running track and cross country and also my parents were into hiking and so we would go on day hikes pretty regularly and yeah so like very some very classic New England 
outdoor yeah. activities, but not yeah. in the same like multi-day expeditionary format yeah. I am drawn to now. Um, besides the Cocopelli, do you remember, I mean, I guess even before mountain biking came into the picture for you, what was your first like major adventure? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I think that I start, so I started ice climbing when I was later in high school, like a senior. And I went with my boyfriend into Huntington Ravine in up on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. And I think that like winter camping and climbing ice and a multi-pitch like rugged environment felt like a pretty big adventure. And then shortly after that, my second year in college, I transferred or I started working for Outward Bound, um, a outdoor ed, expeditionary yeah. outdoor ed school in Oregon and started working these courses that were like 30 days long and in the mountains or on the river. And so that really kicked off like what then became a career in outdoor education and of adventuring and teaching people to adventure and learn yeah. through it. So that's so cool. I've, I, especially as a teacher who likes to go outdoors and have adventures, I'm like, man, yeah. outward bound, like what, what is that program like? I mean, yeah, those programs, I've also been working for Knowles for about 10 years now too. And I actually still do work for them a bit. Um, and Prescott College, which is a small liberal arts college dedicated to, um, they have a whole adventure education program. And so those programs are incredible. Like I really, when I think about teaching and like my math, uh, undergrad and master's are in education, like I just wish that we had the sort of infrastructure in this country where every single kid went on an outdoor ed trip that was at least a week long, ideally a month or a whole semester. <laughs> like the seriously though, like while you don't necessarily walk away with like your math or English dialed, you do walk away with having just worked on a team and worked on developing self-awareness and communication skills and leadership skills. And, and all of those are completely transferable to every single job you could ever need, like, or want in any relationship you'd ever want to be in. And so I think that that sort of experience is incredibly empowering and growth oriented for youth and adults. Um, yeah. And that, in addition to that, like, I think a really, a very real piece, and this has been huge in my life, is, like, the more time you spend in that environment, like, living in the outdoors and being challenged by them and working through challenges to meet goals, like, the more you connect with the landscape and the environment and, like, realize how connected we are to the environment um, and how it really needs us. Yeah. Yeah. One, you also probably give kids a moment to just focus and like eliminate all the background noise, all the distraction. Because that's what I love. I don't know about you, but like, I just yeah. love when you, it's just peaceful. You put, you don't have totally. any distractions. You don't have your phone going off. Like I have a billion things going on in my head every single day. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I just get to put all of those aside. And it's weird. Cause I've told people, I'm like, yeah, running, through the desert or going hiking up a mountain is like way easier than day to day. <laughs> totally. No, it's so true. And like, it's really interesting to think back, like when I first worked outward bound courses in like 2007, like students, teenagers at the time, like weren't as connected to their phones. Yeah. And they are now, if they even had a phone and it was like pretty common for them to not. 
And since then, we've just seen this change in how now students who come on course and adults like have to like go through this like weaning off their electronics phase because we don't bring our phones in the field. Like one, you don't have service most of the time. Two, yeah. there's no way to charge them really in this context. And three, like, yeah, it's an opportunity to be present and to focus on the place you're in and the people you're with. And it's been incredible to see students realize the value in doing that after going through it very reluctantly. (laughs) And then also something I've been thinking about more lately as I work in the field way less now, um, as I've had an opportunity to focus more on my bike and that really regular break from my phone and my email has, was such a huge source of health for me that like now I'm, working on instituting it in a like more self-directed way but it's also like what you're saying about moving through the desert and mountains like with just you and them like that's why I don't race like with music or I didn't bring my phone on Cocapelli because like it's liberating to yeah. move without that distraction yeah and it just builds like this self-confidence you're like I don't need any of that like oh, yeah. I'm I'm responsible for me going into the desert and I'm responsible for me getting out of the desert. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And like in this instance, I had my spot in the instance that like if something really bad happened and I really needed help, I could get it. But like, I'm not going to just turn on my phone and be like, can you come pick me up? I don't want to be here anymore. (laughs) Or like, I'm tired. I'm going to like look at Instagram instead of race. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you just a little bit, like, I know you came back from this really tough, kind of devastating injury what was that process like mentally and physically yeah so my injury was my injuries were from a car accident in on christmas eve in 2018 um i shattered my pelvis broke my sacrum and ruptured my bladder and i broke my fibula and i was in the icu and hospital for 10 days um and left with an external fixator and my pelvis, which is a crazy experience. Um, and then was in a wheelchair for five weeks and then on crutches for another five or so. Um, and so that was well into the spring of 2019. And it's interesting because I was able to get on my bike actually really quickly um, and start riding again. And so I think through a lot of lenses, like I had a really fast recovery and I'm super grateful for that. But really like it was from that time until just a week and a week ago, week and a half ago, where I rode and raced Cocapelli that I've been working on recovering. And it's wow. really been like the last couple percent that I've been working on the last year and a half. Like the first six months were like the majority of it, like the healing of the bones and the yeah. connective tissue and the organ and all that. And But after that, it's just like these tiny, tiny improvements that are like so hard to measure and a lot of it had to do with just like rebuilding both the strength, but also the mobility and the flexibility. Cause like I now have pins in my sacrum. And when you spend that much time immobile, you just lose so much and build up so much scar tissue and there's so much inflammation. And I think there's a lot that like, I don't understand really what was going on and maybe, and I think it's even sometimes hard for doctors to fully understand like what you still need to work on or do. But the main thing is that like, that sort of trauma just takes time and you can just can get to a point where you're fully functional and healthy. And like, I was able to ride my mountain bike and go on long rides all last summer and go bike packing. But 
and even did some shorter races, but it just takes a like time for your body to really one, like let go of, I think some of the inflammation and like trauma that, and for your body to trust that like you're okay again and to make those micro improvements in your mobility and strength that um, are really hard to measure, but like, yeah, it just takes, and I think for me, what that, that actually looks like is like training in the same, in a similar way that I had, but like being more conservative with how quickly I would ramp up because I'm like yeah. more prone to developing tendonitis. Um, and also being just really dedicated to strength training and I do yoga like at least for 10 minutes, but every single day now because my body just needs it and those are things that i didn't have to do before like when i was racing up until that car accident i could just get off my bike and not stretch and wake up in the morning and not stretch and i didn't have to do any (laughs) strength training i just was really like strong and mobile and like i was probably just good luck in young age (laughs) yeah and um but now for those to happen like i need to work on balancing my body through strength training and i need to work on flexibility and like i see a Wolfer for body work as I can afford it. And yeah, just those things um, have made a really big difference, but it's just taken time. <laughs> yeah. When it, when it first happened, like, what did you tell yourself mentally? I mean, did you just accept like, Hey, this is going to be a process to recover from, or was it like, Oh, like, cause I know for me, <laughs> if I have like one twinge, in like my calf or something i'm like okay oh this is the worst this is the worst (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and i'm totally and i can relate to that feeling like i've been there with like a broken ankle and like other aches and pains and but that for this one like when the car accident first happened like when my car came to a stop my i couldn't feel my legs which is often a symptom of being paralyzed and so like the immediate thing that i went through as soon as i was processing like okay like i'm alive one two like i'm conscious and three like i could be paralyzed like i might not ever walk or bike again let alone race and so going through that and like living with that uncertainty for a whole night and into the next day when you then see an orthopedic surgeon like that gives you this perspective of like wow like I'm so lucky just to be here and if I never walk or bike again it will be okay and like I'll find another way of existing and having a meaningful life but if I do get to do this then like I am going to make the most of it and like do my best to come back like stronger than I've ever been before um And so I think that that really changed how I approached the recovery to the point, to the extent that like that, my headspace wasn't that hard to maintain. Like, and that's not to say there weren't hard moments. Like there were definitely moments where like, oh my God, like I, this sucks, but it was easy to come back to the place of like, and I'm really lucky. And like, I do get to heal and I do get to ride my bike again. But then this summer when I developed tendonitis, which is now like, a year and a half after the accident and suddenly I like had to take a break. I was pissed <laughs> and I was so frustrated. I was like, oh, this is the worst thing. And like, yeah. this is so dumb. And, <laughs> you know, it's just like that difference where I was like, this was kind of self-inflicted because I rode too much too soon after yeah. the winter. And Yeah. Well, it's so. funny because like, I know I've definitely, like, it sounds like you like learned this lesson of gratitude and, and all that 
and and then basically had to relearn it again after tendonitis and you're like <laughs> yeah. oh but and then you put it into perspective and you're like oh this is nothing compared to what uh-huh. i originally went through <laughs> yeah no i totally feel you on that totally. one that's wild um so real quick just to kind of wrap up um i wanted to ask you just a couple things just about bike packing in general um yep. It sounds amazing. I've never done it yet, but it is a goal. Uh, can you give us like the pitch? Like why would, why should people go out and bike pack? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> um, people should go bike packing because you get to have the experience of traveling through somewhere and camping in the way that you would backpacking, but it's a lot easier on your body. And it's really fun because you're moving and you still get to ride, like go downhill and go ride single track if you want to, and like have that engaging experience on your bike. Um, And the other reason for me is that you can move at a pace that is usually faster than walking. And so you can see more in the same amount of time. And so you can go out from a weekend and um, go on what, for the distance would be the same as backpacking for maybe a week. And I guess the final thought behind it is that you can bike pack from your house That's and amazing. it depends on where you live on what it looks like, but we rarely go backpacking from our front or back door, you know, and, but bikepacking, like you can just pack up your bike and ride through town and connect bike path or back roads and end up on your local trails like this spring during our COVID lockdown, I took my partner and our puppy <laughs> bikepacking. We rode five miles from the house and camped on a hill yeah. in a farm field and woke up and like we left at 5 p.m. and we came back in the morning by 9 a.m. That sounds so, so cool. Yeah, it's so cool that you can do that. You just have to like pack up your stuff. It does, and in that scenario, like it doesn't matter how be- like good a gear you have. You just need to get it on your bike somehow and you can like, bring a box of pizza if you want like you don't even have to bring a stove <laughs> and uh, yeah it's awesome that's awesome yeah i and i have to imagine the community is just incredible the community is really cool like it's awesome i think it's neat that at this point now with the world of social media like one benefit to it is that you can like find the communities in different places and find resources and like get to know people through that broader like national and global community yeah do you think do you feel like it's still under like an underground kind of activity um i mean i think that it's still niche enough and that like other people won't necessarily have heard of it but i think like it is growing rapidly like if you there's this function with google where you can search google trends and if you type in bikepacking the trend is like it's just growing exponentially. Nice. And I think like this year it's like been Googled more than any other year. Um, oh so yeah. I, I bet. Within cycling, like definitely becoming more and more. Yeah. That's awesome. Where uh, do you have a favorite, like what's the best state? If you're like, I really want to go bike packing. What's the like best state to do it? Oh my God. I mean, really? Like, I think that, this is maybe a non-answer, but like <laughs> that idea of being able to bike pack from home, like where you are. And yeah. if you were, especially right now, like that's one of the beautiful things with like travel being harder, like you can make it work and you don't have to get in an airplane to have an amazing bike packing trip. And if you are, 
looking for like a really incredible life list adventure, like riding something like the Western Wildlands route or the Great Divide mountain bike route or a single track long distance trail such as the Colorado Trail or the Arizona Trail, like you won't be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It will oh, that be sounds... well worth the time. That's so cool. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, bike, like co-founding bike packing routes? Yeah, totally. Um, and it's well time. We just had a Zoom board retreat for Friday through Sunday, which um, was actually really inspiring despite it being two and a half days on Zoom. Um, There's Zoom fatigue. It's a real thing. <laughs> it is a real, yeah, you know. I mean, I guess that's like really your your jam right now. I tell my students, I'm like, close your computers, write stuff in your notebook and go outside. Like, don't look at the screen. (laughs) Come on. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so good. But yeah, we, Kurt Restenreiter and I co-founded Bikepacking Roots in 2017. It was first a concept in late 2015. Um, Really just in response to what was already then a very quickly growing bikepacking community and just identifying that like, well, with this at that rate which is only continued that we would become like a real user group that needs advocating for for both like physical access to bikepacking and um the future of being able to create and go out on routes and also just advocating for responsible and inspired behaviors by bikepacking in terms of by bike packers in terms of like the how they how bike packers travel and interact with other users and landscapes and yeah it's grown um really wonderfully at this point we have six thousand members we have a free membership and these numbers matter in terms of being able to tell like the forest service like we're representing this number of people for oh that's cool yeah for maintaining access so even if you haven't bike packed yet um but have any interest in supporting us just you can just sign up and be a free member um that's sweet i will i'll make sure to post the link to that on this yeah thank you and And i'll sign up too because i am that's a 2000 yes awesome yeah um yeah so we really do i guess i'll just end with the bikepacking routes at this point we do three things we create routes um we also we advocate like we identify land management issues that we can have a voice in um, to advocate for bike packers and the landscapes through a tree ride. And we're working on growing the community, particularly right now in supporting and in better um, support for diversity, equity, inclusion, and access for BIPOC cyclists, um, but also in trying to make bikepacking more accessible for those who haven't gone yet. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool. I'm going to check that out as soon as we're done talking. And then just get really psyched for bikepacking right before yeah. winter. Winter, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that sounds like a super good resource. Um, I want to ask you just last question, just really specific to Cocopelli. Um, do you have a couple, like what's your favorite spot on the Cocopelli? Mm-hmm. Like either like a great view, obviously it's not yeah. the Rose Garden, the Rose Garden sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, do you have like a favorite yeah. Cocopelli spot? Because I have a very specific one. And I'll never yeah, I think <laughs> I think my very specific spot is by Cottonwood Creek, okay. which for us, for my direction is after Rose Garden Hill. For you running in your direction, it's before Rose Garden Hill. And it's really just this spot that you're like 
in this sandstone canyon and there are cottonwood trees and there's yeah. often water, which is a rare and special <laughs> thing in the desert. You're still in the LaSalle's. Like yes. you still haven't gotten out of them. <laughs> um, but they're also very much behind you. And so, yeah, I just, it, and to me, it's like where the Colorado Plateau, like classic Colorado Plateau, Canyon, desert, sandstone meets the LaSalle's because there's like mountains right there. So, yeah, that's, that's amazing. I know spot. that exact spot. I love that spot. Mine was probably like five miles after that for you. Um, oh, cool. you come that? out of that, you come out of yeah. that, uh, Canyon and you're on the plateau now. Yeah. And at least for me, so this was my experience going the other direction. You climb this giant Hill and then you turn around and you just see everywhere you've just mm-hmm. been. You know, you totally. see, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And it's like That's the craziest awesome. view that I've ever seen. And especially with the perspective of like, whoa, I just traveled across all that. That's nuts. But for you, yeah. it's probably like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's like, go. Well, we have a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Kate, thank you for coming on the show. Like, I really enjoyed chatting with you, uh, you know, hearing about Coke Pelly and all that. So uh, it's awesome talking with you. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, best of luck with everything in the future. Thank you. Good luck with your Zoom teaching. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. All right, ladies and gents, that wraps up episode number 229. Kate Boyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you are interested in following her, her future adventures, which I'm sure will be plentiful and awesome and badass, um, <laughs> you can check out her website at imkate.com. Her Instagram, which is kate.boyle, just spelled exactly as I've spelled it here. Um, please check out Bikepacking Roots and support them. Uh, I think it's a wonderful idea, wonderful concept. And it's from all I've heard, and I've, I, I haven't personally bikepacked yet, even though I was just emailing Kate and I was like, this is, I'm for sure bikepacking. <laughs> That's 100% happening next year. Um, I, I just love the idea and I've heard nothing but amazing things about the bikepacking community. Uh, the people who go out, ride their bikes way deep into the wilderness, go camping, have fun, hang out, explore these beautiful areas. Uh, it just sounds absolutely incredible. Um, something I definitely want to get into. Something a few of my friends want to get into. Calvin Johansson, I'm talking about you, buddy. Uh, he really wants to... Uh, um, well, he went, him and my buddy, Brandon, who was on last week's episode, they hiked the Grand Canyon a few months ago and they saw these two guys who were bike packing. And basically you can't bike in the Grand Canyon. You have to like break the bike down, load it up, put it on your back and carry it through. But these two guys were doing a whole trail from Canada to Mexico and had to get rerouted into the Grand Canyon. So they had to figure out, oh, we have to hike like 20 to 30 miles with this bike on her back, which was wild. But for Calvin, it definitely kind of uh, stoked the flame of adventure and was like, what people ride their bikes super long and like camp out and stuff. I want to do that. Um, So it sounds super cool. Uh, If you're interested in adventures or kind of the stuff we talk about generally on the like a Bigfoot podcast, I feel like bikepacking is right up your alley. Um, so check out her website. It's bikepacking roots, roots, like the roots of a tree. Um, 
So bikepackingrots.org. Um, you can donate to them. You can help them out, uh, help create a bigger community, things like that. Um, something I've been thinking about this week, uh, I'm back at, at remote teaching. Um, we were doing like a hybrid thing for a while, but now I'm back at home 24 seven. Like I'm in my home. I'm, I'll leave to go run in the mountains and then that's about it. So, uh, I got me and my first grader here. We're, we're both doing remote learning, remote teaching. Um, so it's a lot of like being at home and part of me wants to kind of like rebel and feel bad and just like, Oh man, I'm at home again. This is stupid, stupid home. Like that's part of my brain wants to do that. That's the weak, <laughs> the weak part of my brain. Um, and the other part though, is using this, the stronger part, which I would like to think I'm, you know, in touch with much more. Uh, it's using this opportunity to really nail down a few daily disciplines. Um, I don't know if you if you don't follow the Instagram. Uh, I've been doing yoga every single day for at least 15 minutes, sometimes more, um, but always at least 15. I've been doing it. Today was day 713 in a row and I haven't missed a day because in my mind, I'm like, oh, you can do 15 minutes of anything every day. It doesn't matter how busy you are. It doesn't matter what your schedule is. You can fit 15 minutes in. And if you can't fit 15 minutes in, that's because you are making excuses, not because the 15 minutes isn't there. Um, so I've been doing that consistently every single day for 713 days. Uh, I have to say running wise, I haven't been injured. I'm sore on rare occasions. Even after my ultras, I've after like a day or so, I've felt fine. Um, and I think part of that, you got to have mobility. You got to have flexibility, strength. Yoga builds a lot of strength. Um, you know, I, I should focus more on the mental aspect and the meditation aspect, uh, probably more than I should, but, but that might be something to kind of tweak in the, in the upcoming months, um, for me, but just for the physical side, it has made so much of a difference and just that consistency. Like I didn't feel great doing yoga for like the first hundred days probably. And I still don't feel great every day. Cause sometimes I do it at like four in the morning, <laughs> right when I wake up. Um, so you're like all tight still and stuff, but that daily discipline will have huge advantages. So, uh, I'm trying to do that. I'm also trying to just work on, uh, I just added journaling into my daily routine. Uh, it's something that's only going to take about 10 minutes. I watched a video online, uh, on YouTube. There's this guy called wheezy waiter and you guys like his stuff's fantastic. I would be blown away if I could talk to him on the podcast. Um, but he, I've, I had seen him before cause he's done a bunch of science videos I've showed my students, but he does a personal channel and lately he's been doing a bunch of challenges and stuff. And one is journaling every day and based off of his excitement of how much it's helped him after even like four days, I was like, I got to journal. I got to write, I got to like just get thoughts out on paper and then you don't have to dwell on them anymore. Um, I'm not journaling about anything specific. It's just whatever I'm thinking about that day. Um, things like that. Hopefully it's going to help me have clearer thoughts. Um, hopefully it's going to help me just stay organized 
And then also just have ideas written down. You know, I have all these ideas all the time, but they go in one ear and out the other. And I like to kind of solidify some basic themes in my life. So one thing I've been thinking about a lot this morning is this idea. Um, what can you do that only takes about 20% of your time, but gives you like 80% of your happiness or joy or peace or um, stress relief or something like that. So what can you do that takes 20% of your time? So for me, that'd be working out every day, doing yoga, going for a run, journaling, hopefully, <laughs> um, you know, maybe picking up the house, which doesn't take that much time. And yet to me and my emotional well-being those things do so much i don't get stressed out when i'm doing those things consistently and it's the idea of discipline uh, brings you freedom and i think it's that idea i think it's discipline which doesn't have to be in 80 90 100 of your life it might only have to be on 20 percent if you choose the right 20 percent right if i'm disciplined about exercising i feel better if I'm disciplined about journaling, I'm hopefully going to feel better, feel like I've written stuff down. If I'm disciplined about some of the bigger projects I'm working on, like the podcast maybe, or some of the other things I have uh, coming up in the future, then the rest of my day, I'm just going to be happier because I put in that little bit of work. And it doesn't take like an hour, you know, three hours of doing something to give you that benefit you know for me with yoga it takes 15 minutes and i get this bigger benefit uh for journaling so far the past three days not an expert at it by any means but past three days it's it's 10 minutes and i feel better because i gave myself those 10 minutes to sit with my thoughts um I've been reading a lot more. I've been reading some historical biographies, just geeking out about it. Uh, and by reading those, and even if it's just a chapter a day, because these books are, there's a lot of info there, but just a chapter a day, it gives me this greater benefit because it kind of expands my mind with other ideas. So um, just start thinking about that. What 20% effort can you give in certain areas, whatever that may be, that will give you 80% of your happiness, enjoyment, peace, stuff like that, okay? Um, I think it's huge. It's a theme I'm gonna definitely work on a bunch over the next few weeks. Uh, I have the next month of, pod, month of podcasts recorded. It is an amazing slate of guests. I'm super excited. Next week, we're gonna sit down with uh, some of one of the the guys I looked up to uh, as a young man, I used to coach with him. His name's Bruce Kittle. Um, I'm sitting down with him and his daughter, Emma. They have started an amazing podcast called Hidden Pearls. Um, I love it because I just love listening to the wisdom of Bruce and Emma. I mean, she has so much wisdom as well. Um, and just kind of taking that in uh, every single week. They have their son, George, on it. Uh, every week, George is one of the best players in the NFL. He is George Kittle. He's the tight end for the San Francisco 49ers. Um, and just solid mindset, solid dude. Um, Bruce is going to drop some knowledge on you guys next week. 
that hopefully will blow your mind because I went through the video trying to find a little preview clip I could put up um, of the show. And I know specifically one thing that Bruce says, we start talking about the Icarus deception. One thing he says about that idea is just gonna like have you shaking and feel like you can do anything you put your mind to. That's what this guy does. Um, so I'm super excited to talk to him and Emma. Please check out their podcast though. If you have time, uh, hidden pearls, they do some excellent stuff. Uh, they do different mindset lessons every week. They talk about the NFL. Um, and then they also have a charity focus every single week, depending on who the 49ers are playing. Um, so the podcast really has it all. It has everything from goofy discussions to mind blowing mindset wisdom to even just like bigger picture charity stuff. So super good stuff. Uh, come back next week for that. And yeah, we'll just wrap up there. Hope you guys have a good week.